0: Morning Glory America, bonjour, hi Canada, greetings to all my friends in Israel and especially my new audience in the People's Republic of China where they listen with great interest every single morning. This is, for your benefit, the Hillsdale Dialogue. Once a week we go back and celebrate one of the great classics in Western literature and by the way we will soon be doing Confucius with Dr. Larry Arn. but this week we are back at the beginning because it's been five years since we did Homer's Iliad on the Hillsdale Dialogue there are always new translations, there are always new voices, and it's really my excuse to talk with Professor Stephen Smith again. Really, probably my favorite Hillsdale Dialogue guest, and you can tell that to Larry Aron and to Matt, and you can tell it to everyone up there. I just like Steve Smith the most, because uh, he is an English teacher, a professor of English, and really, I get tired with politics sometimes. Steve Smith, welcome back to the Hugh Hewitt Show.
1: It's great to be back, Hugh, and I'm happy to represent poetry.
0: Well, I you are talking about poetry, and I want to set this up for our Pittsburgh Steeler fans who said, what? Oh, no. Homer is the beginning of everything. The Iliad is the beginning of everything. I was going to open by reading, my voice is shot, or I would have opened by reading the first verses of Homer about Achilles. Would you tell people before we do that, and you're going to have to do all the reading because I can't read, why do we still study Homer all these centuries later?
1: Well, you know... A poet as great as Dante described Homer as the one whose right hand wields the sword, the one who comes before other poets as their lord, the sovereign writer. So he's had you know, a, a huge fan base from, uh, from the beginning. But really, for our purposes, I think he represents um, and probes you know, human greatness and human desire as well as, as any poet. He probes the, the great heroes of his own culture, figures like Achilles and Odysseus. He probes the great leaders, and when you're reading him, especially when you're when you, as you're doing so, when you're done, it's great to just ask a question like this: You know, what perspective does this great poet bring to bear on our human nature? You know, what do we see and what do we learn about human nature, um, human striving and human desire through this poem? Uh, he is. Uh, the master of that subject
0: now it's interesting to me Stephen smith i have had in recent weeks on this show marine corps general james mattis i've had recently on this show admiral james stavridis former supreme allied commander of nato i had not long ago on this show general stanley mccrystal one of the all-time superstars of special operations i've had bill mcraven the head of the seals i've had on tom cotton an army ranger walk point i've had on warriors do do the themes of the Iliad speak to all of those individuals and the careers that they led in this new millennium, as well as a uh, thousand years before Christ was born? If I've got the dating right, it might be two thousand years before Christ was born when the Homer wrote the Iliad. But is it all the same subject?
1: Yes, I think for you know for Homer, one of the lines early on in the Iliad is "We must share all," and one of the things that we share is. Whatever it is we mean by human nature. And Homer has represented that and probed it unlike any other writer. So if you share with Homer, with Achilles, with Odysseus, human nature, um, if you want to get to know uh, yourself, if you want to think as seriously as possible about ruling and leading uh, of of your own soul, uh, Homer Homer's the man, and this is, this is what the poem is about.
0: I took Homer in 1974 from a fellow named John Finley, a classics a genius and, and demigod of the Harvard faculty. And the class was always filled with 600 people in Sanders Hall at the beginning, and it would dwindle throughout the year because people don't understand poetry, Stephen Smith. They arrive on campus ill-equipped to read uh, Homer, how do you remedy that with your students? How do you remedy it for this audience?
1: Well, certainly listening to the poem read aloud, even in translation, is great. For example, there's a wonderful audiobook by Ian McKellen that carries you away uh, with the rhythms of, uh, of a great translation. And on, on my family side, uh, one of my sons told me one day that he didn't like writing of a certain kind. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, writing in, in lines. I'm like, no, what do you mean? And it got, I finally got down to, Oh, you mean poetry. Ah. <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, I've encountered this among my own children, but, but for, for Homer, especially, uh, reading, reading him aloud together and then thinking together about the poetry is, is the bread and butter approach I've used. And when I teach him, um, in our great books class here, for example, I love when folks come in averse to Homer or you know, when, they, or when they, don't, they don't want to study the subject or they don't like poetry because I'm confident that uh, the one whose right hand wields the sword is going to win him over by the end. But you're right. It can be an obstacle. So a little bit of patience, a little bit of reading aloud, um, reading with a friend, time, we- time-honored ways.
0: Can we begin then with the key text, the famous opening lines, the invocation of the muses, and then have you read it since my voice is shot?
1: Sure. Um, Here we go. The opening lines. Rage, goddess. Sing the rage of Peleus' son Achilles. Murderous, doomed. That cost the Achaeans countless losses. Hurling down to the house of death. So many sturdy souls. Great fighters' souls but made their bodies carrion, feasts for dogs and birds, and the will of Zeus was moving toward its end. Begin, Muse, when the two first broke and clashed, Agamemnon, Lord of Men, and brilliant Achilles. Period.
0: All right, I'm going to ask you to do it a second time before I ask you a question about it. These are probably the most famous lines in literature, and so if you haven't heard them, listen to them again, Professor Smith.
1: Rage Goddess. Sing the rage of Peleus' son Achilles, murderous, doomed, that cost the Achaeans countless losses, hurling down to the house of death so many sturdy souls, great fighters' souls, but made their bodies carrion, feasts for dogs and birds, and the will of Zeus was moving toward its end. Begin, Muse, when the two first broke and clashed, Agamemnon, Lord of Men, and brilliant Achilles. All right, so we
0: begin, obviously, with the question, uh, who is the goddess?
1: Well, this is will be the muse of, of epic inspiration. So in both Homeric epics, the poet appeals to the muse uh, for assistance in singing and sharing the story um, with, with his listeners. Um, and then, of course, the, the other subject here is, is the rage of Achilles, the will of Zeus, and then the clash between Agamemnon and Achilles.
0: And a foreshadowing, murderous, doomed Achilles. Yes. I mean, that's like giving away the trailer. It's like a, we would call it a spoiler in the first line, isn't it?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, this, this stuff is un, inescapable in certain works of literature, but this is going to get very bad before it gets better. <laughs> and you can you can hear it in, in these lines. Uh, this isn't just, you know, run-of-the-mill anger. This isn't, you know, like an intemperate tweet or something like that. This is you know cataclysmic rage or wrath that is going to have these effects it's going to hurl down to the house of death great fighters souls and it's going to make their bodies the feasts of dogs and birds it's going to even you know invert the natural order of things it's going to be a very potent form of rage
0: i do not know if you are a partaker of movies about these things but brad pitt played achilles once and the opening scene is Brad Pitt taking down to the to Hades the
1: soul of a great warrior. Did you happen to see that? You know, I have not seen it, but my students ask me about it a lot.
0: Yeah, it's the very first scene. And, and, and it's just, it it is consistent with the very first line, murderous, a, a doomed Achilles. Although you know that Brad Pitt is doomed, you know that Achilles, that, that Achilles is doomed. When is this taking place?
1: Well, this is the... The 10th year of the war. Of the Trojan War. Yes, of the Trojan War. And what's quite striking about it is, and I'm the son of a math teacher, but I may get the numbers wrong here, it's about 40 days, 40 to 45 days of time in the 10th year of the war. And then it ends with the war, you know, not resolved. Students always feel wronged by that. That, you know, how how could Homer do that to us, you know? And they often want the... Um, you know, almost like a historical, biographical version of the war. They want to start with the judgment of Paris. They want to go from year one to year 10. But what the poet does is he focuses our attention on this one moment of time, if you will, 40 days, 40 nights, so to speak, in the 10th year of the war, with the rage of Achilles and the will of Zeus, moving toward its end.
0: It's interesting, I was told by one of these warriors, Stephen Smith, that for every warrior, the battle that they are in is Normandy, is Iwo Jima. For every firefight, the people who are involved in that fire, I'm a civilian, that that is all of war. I thought that was an interesting observation. I believe it is true here. We'll come back to these 40 days of Achilles, Agamemnon, Hector, Priam, and much else when we return. It's the first week of many weeks on Homer's Iliad. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue, all things Hillsdale, at hillsdale.edu. Stay tuned, America. Welcome back, America. It's at Hewitt. Laryngitis Challenge, but nevertheless up to the Hillsdale Dialogue. The Hillsdale Dialogue, all things that last, all things that are important, we discuss in the last radio hour of the week. Everything about Hillsdale is available at hillsdale.edu, including amazing online courses. And I usually have Dr. Larry Arn or, or Dean Matt Spaulding on with me, but occasionally we get lucky and we get to talk to one of the professors who actually teach. In this case... One of my favorites, Steve Smith. We know that, that Dean Matt and Pre- President Arn teach, but they don't teach like Steve Smith when it comes to Homer. Steve, how often do you get to teach Homer to Hillsdale students?
1: Well, he, here he is part of the great book sequence that all the freshmen take. And so I myself, in recent years, have become a dean. And so I haven't taught Homer as much as I'd like.
0: You've but, gone I mean, over to
1: the dark side? Oh, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am the dean of the humanities now here, so. Oh, another soul lost
0: to Hades. Honestly, <laughs> it's like becoming a half person. You went across the river, you gave your coin to whoever it is that does the riverboat, and off you go.
1: All right. Brad, from dean- Brad, Pitt, has le- the ra- Brad Pitt has led me down. Yeah. He has. Uh, <laughs> tell
0: us before, this is a short segment, so I want to make sure people understand. Ten years into the war, a fight breaks out between Achilles, whom everybody knows, right? They know the myth. They grew up on it. Very few people know who Agamemnon is. Who is Agamemnon?
1: Well, he's the lead king. Um, He he commands the most men, Homer tells us, at the beginning. And maybe the simplest way to think about it, a common way to think about it, is that Agamemnon is, he's excellent because he's a king, because he has a scepter, because he commands the most people. So he's like one form of power, one form of excellence. Achilles, Achilles, with whom he, he quarrels, He is the greatest warrior, so his excellence, he's called um, brilliant and godlike. Um, His excellence is all on the level of his own nature, his ability to fight, his speed. And so these two come into bitter conflict with each other right at the beginning of the poem.
0: And and what is that conflict over?
1: Well, at the beginning of the poem, uh, Agamemnon has wronged the priest of Apollo. Apollo brings a plague down on the Greek armies, and Achilles is the one who intervenes. And he demands that Agamemnon give back the priest of Apollo's daughter to end the plague. Now, the problem with that is Agamemnon sees this, this daughter as his prize, as, as a representative of his honor. And so he says, I'm supposed to give my honor away back to solve this while you keep yours. No, no and a quarrel breaks out uh, between the two of them. And and really, it comes down to Agamemnon finally saying, I'll give her back, but I'm going to take your prize, Achilles, which is a version of, of what Paris actually did to Menelaus when he took Helen. So Agamemnon... Uh, no, let's back is, up. Paris
0: is a Trojan, Menelaus is a Greek. And yeah. what do you mean by taking Helen?
1: Oh, well, the the, the famous judgment of of Paris, which is behind the whole poem in a way. Paris went to Menelaus's home and he ran off with Menelaus's wife, Helen. And that's why Helen is in Troy. That's why Helen is called the face that launched a thousand ships later in the tradition. The, the war, um, the Greeks are there, um, to avenge Menelaus. So the quarrel is between Agamemnon and Achilles, but it connects back to, um, Paris and Helen as well. At the
0: beginning, I want to ask you if you have sympathy for the Trojans. Not a historical sympathy. We know the city exists. I'm not here to date the ruins of Troy. But in the poem itself, do you have sympathy for the Trojans?
1: I I think certainly um, Homer does, while also showing some serious problems with Troy.
0: Though they were unjust at the beginning. Everyone understands. They did an unjust thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a problem, you know, and in Troy, though, uh, the lead warrior Hector, his wife Andromache and their young infant son um, are among the most compelling characters in the poem. And eventually Achilles and Hector are on a collision course uh, with one another. But a lot of sympathy surrounds uh, Hector in particular, the great Trojan hero.
0: So we have talked about where the rage of Achilles comes. Agamemnon wants the girl that he got as a prize in a battle. And Achilles doesn't want to give her up, but has to. When we come back, we're going to talk about gods and men. Because not the not the movie about the Confederate War, but because gods and men have been fighting for a long time. Stephen Smith of Hillsdale is with me. Hillsdale.edu. For all things Hillsdale, all of our dialogues at youforhillsdale.com. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue. Once a week, we go. We go very high. The rest of the world might go very low. We go very high with the Hillsdale Dialogue this week with Dean Stephen Smith. I was calling him Professor Stephen Smith at the beginning of this hour. Then I realized he'd been promoted down to Hades and is now part of academic administration. But he's still a heck of a teacher and always a welcome guest. He's also another brand new dad. I think. Grace is one of the most adorable pictures I've ever seen. But as the Fetching Mrs. Hewitt pointed out, she hasn't been through a Michigan winter yet.
1: <laughs> well, she has plenty of blankets from from friends and family to get her through it. But she, she's really been a, been a great Grace in our life. and we're, That we're is very terrific.
0: Happy. That is my grandmother's name. I just love the name Grace. Let's talk before we move to book two about the gods who appear in book one. In fact, in the first line, muses, help me out. Goddesses, help me out. Give us a general overlay of the Greek understanding of gods and goddesses.
1: Well, I mean, in this, in this poem, um, back to those opening lines, there really are kind of two subjects, the rage of Achilles and then the will of Zeus moving toward its end. And so you might think of the whole poem as, you know, the will of Achilles and the will of Zeus working something out across the 24 books human will, the divine will. Zeus is the father of gods and men. He's the god associated with wisdom. But it's important to see that he has an end, a goal, that he is trying to bring bring about through the Iliad, uh, as does Achilles on his side. But he's not the only god. Uh, There's also Aphrodite and Ares, the goddess of desire and the god of war. And they tend to be wilder goddess and god. They tend to be associated with madness and ruin, even. And so there's a conflict up on Olympus. Um, Many readers have wondered, you know, what kind of gods are these? What kind of image of the divine? When you ask students about it, eventually one sharp student or another will say, a lot of these gods and goddesses seem like, you know, human beings um, at their worst moments. So this is a very difficult subject to understand with Homer, but what I would encourage listeners to do is to think about it in terms of the relationship between the divine will, will of Zeus, and then the human being's will, like in the case, the Rage of Achilles. I'm going to get you upset here, and that's okay because you're a dean now,
0: but this book, written 750 years before Christ is born, is the first comic book, and by that I mean there are superheroes in it. And everyone who inhabits the Marvel Universe or the DC Universe or who has just seen the Joker this weekend, we're taping this originally during the weekend that the Joker is breaking every box off. He's a villain. There are superheroes and supervillains on Mount Olympus. And uh, whoever your favorite hero might be, whether it's Thor who is himself a god or it might be uh, Tony Stark as Iron Man, they've got counterparts up there. It is mythology, which are stories intended to be believed. And so it's not really a new concept, these comic book characters and their, and their great popularity, Stephen Smith, when you think about we always want these people in our narratives.
1: Well, you know, it's, it's the overstory of the Iliad, you know, and throughout the poem, Homer's going to keep raising the question, how, do, how does the human story relate to the Olympus story? How does the struggle for life and death and glory before Troy compare to what my old prof, Dave Davies, down at University of Dallas called the soap opera on Olympus? Um, it's, this is a vital part of the poem, and you've got to thrash it out. You know, and, and the big theme, the divine will and the human will, puts Homer at the beginning of a long line of texts on this subject. The Odyssey, the Aeneid, Augustine's Confessions, the Divine Comedy, Hamlet, Crime and Punishment. Um, This is just a master meditation that's beginning here and will continue throughout the whole tradition. But Zeus is, in this poem, I think the most important.
0: Now let's talk about Zeus for a moment. Zeus is Jupiter in the Roman tradition. He is the number one god, but he is not without limits. He has a, a whole army of gods and goddesses with whom to contend. Including his daughter Athena, who sprang fully formed from the head of Zeus, as we know. How many of them are there, and how many do we run into? And why are so many of them involved in this war? I mean, the world's a big place. Why do they all show up in Troy?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, part of it involves the, the judgment of Paris. He had to choose between Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite, uh, who is the, the, the most beautiful goddess.
0: Oh, tell who those three are. Those are three women goddesses.
1: Yes, and so there's there's a vested interest in the events at Troy because of the judgment that Paris made. Um, But the other god that's super important in the poem is Ares, the god of war, and he is uh, Aphrodite's lover. He is um, intense, physical, violent. Um, We're also told that Zeus dislikes him the most of all the gods, mainly because he is two-faced and duplicitous, so he's hard to rule, and he's hard to direct, and he's extremely powerful. I'd I'd add one other god that's vital. He comes up in book one, uh, Hephaestus. Uh, He is the crippled smith. He is Vulcan in Roman mythology, and he is the artistic god, and he is going to play a very important role later in this poem. So if I had to single out two that I find most interesting, it would be Zeus and the artist god, Hephaestus.
0: Now that's interesting because I was going to put Apollo on that list, who's also in book one. Apollo shows up in book one because he precipitates Homer. It's all Apollo's fault because he listened to one priest, and he visited a plague upon the Greeks, and Achilles had to go to Agamemnon to get the plague ended. Why does Apollo join in He's not actually on the side of the Trojans yet. He's just on the side of justice, right?
1: Yeah, I I simply forgot uh, to mention him in my list. But yeah, he's a vital uh, figure in book one and also at the very end of the poem. So he's associated with healing and and wisdom as well. Um, It's easy to forget at the beginning that um, Agamemnon's decision, um, Agamemnon's human response, to the priest of Apollo, is, the, is really the cause. I mean, Apollo responds to that. The reason I bring that up is the whole poem is like this, where we have divine actions happening, divine interventions, but Homer keeps making our focus return to that, the human level of the drama as well, human causality. So Agamemnon, you know, making one of his um, bad decisions, he's probably... Um, the most gifted leader in that, <laughs> in that category among the Greeks. Um, but even with uh, Ach- Achilles and other events, the poem will, will show us these moments of divine intervention, the gods, but our focus is always directed to that human level. You
0: know, that. I got to tell you, when I was a young man, a lad, I read the Odyssey probably 50 times, and I probably read the Iliad once. I just love the Odyssey, and Odysseus shows up in book two. And in fact, book two is a quick, kind of index to everybody, isn't it? Sure, yeah. So why a famous catalog, an epic, of all the Greeks that came to Troy? Why put that there?
1: Well, this is a famous of feature of epic poetry. If you read more epic poems, you will um, see later poets imitating Homer in this regard. Um, It's a sort of tribute to all of the, the kings and leaders and their armies that came uh, to Troy in support of Agamemnon and Menelaus. Uh, I had a professor once who uh, swore up and down that the catalog of the ships was the key to it all, and if you could rightly understand that, you could rightly understand everything of Homer. Huh? And then he, and then he dutifully didn't tell us why that. Was, so. Of course not. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's that's a famous feature. But also uh, Odysseus comes up in Book Two, and he is the star of the next Homeric poem, the Odyssey but he's a a vital hero in this poem too. He's kind of He's the fixer in book one. He kind of smooths over things. He helps out Agamemnon in book two. He's going to lead the embassy to Achilles in book nine. And then he's going to even argue when Achilles finally reenters the war and wants to just fight without eating. It's going to be Odysseus who says, you know, really you've got to eat. Human beings beings need food, sir. (laughs) I
0: I think he's the first uh, hero. He has flaws, but I think he's the first hero because I, you might argue Hector and we'll talk about Hector in the next segment when we get to book three. But Odysseus has shown through history as wise, cunning, and he gets the girl back who belongs to him and he wreaks havoc on the people who have who have revenged him and even his old servant, and his dog, love him. Odysseus is an admirable character, isn't
1: he? Well, we'd have to we'd have to read the whole Odyssey to test that thesis. Uh, I think certainly he's most versatile Greek. He's the wittiest Greek. He displays incredible self-control and art at certain moments. He is, in the Odyssey, at least, uh, also problematic. He do- he does lose all of his men on the way back from Troy. Oh, a detail, a detail. Yeah. <laughs> and then he almost launches a civil war at the end of uh, the Odyssey. <laughs> Uh, he kind of needs some help at the end, but I, I agree with you. He's m- among the most intriguing. I think it's no accident that at the end of Plato's Republic, Plato chooses Odysseus. Exactly. Yeah, chooses Odysseus in the myth of her uh, as as his kind of last figure. To pick so, a life, which life does he? Well, let's give away the end
0: of uh, the Republic. Which life does Odysseus choose for his next life?
1: Well, he chooses the life of a, I believe it's a private citizen who who minds his own business, who's just. And He's a quiet he choose, farmer, as I recall. He doesn't choose a tyrant's life. He doesn't choose um, any number of other lives. I, I believe Plato writes that he had learned from his adventures and misadventures and suffering to, to, to make that last choice. Yeah. Now, some, people have said, some people have said Plato you know, revises Homer's Odysseus when he does the vet. It's, it's, still, it's still an important point, and Odysseus has intrigued centuries and centuries of the best readers.
0: Now, one minute, Dean Smith, Agamemnon gets a bad rap. What are his best qualities as a leader? And do you see any of them in book two?
1: <laughs> well, when, when he decides to test the troops um, and the test goes disastrously and he needs Odysseus to bail him out, that looks like a, uh, a kind of botch. Um, my 10-year-old, I'm a 10-year-old, my 10th grader, Thomas Smith, you know, his school of literary criticism uh, he he thinks Agamemnon's a bit of a punk. Um, he doesn't, doesn't admire him as a king. Um, I think, you know, honestly, he, at least in the books we're looking at, he hasn't hasn't done very much well. You know, I, uh, I went down to
0: Fredericksburg two weeks ago. He's the Ambrose Burnside of uh, the Iliad. I mean, he is the least competent general in the world. When when you just discuss that, and uh, when we come back. We're going to talk about the other side of the, uh, the boundary line, what's going on in Troy with Dean Stephen Smith of Hillsdale. All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. All of these conversations, including the first time I went through, Homer, six years ago with my friends from Hillsdale, are collected at hughforhillsdale.com. Your binge listening that will actually elevate and inform and entertain you, hughforhillsdale.com. I'll be right back. Welcome back, America. I am Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogue. We have finally begun our much-promised series on Homer's The Iliad. Uh, Dean Stephen Smith, formerly Professor Stephen Smith, when he was among the mortals, has now ascended to the Olympus of Hillsdale. He's Dean Stephen Smith has joined us to get us through the first three books, and we have six minutes to set up book three, where we meet Helen of Troy, where we meet her lover Paris, and where we talk about Really, where is Troy's role in this? Tell us about Helen and Paris.
1: Well, in Book 3, the focus shifts over to the Trojan side, and we meet um, the main characters. We meet King Priam. We meet his two sons, Hector and Paris, and then we meet Helen. And it begins with Paris, and Paris is dashingly handsome. He looks like uh, the greatest warrior, the best warrior, um, but his brother, Hector, points out that he has no pith within him. So he's all outward appearance, no inward pith. Hector, on the other hand, is the defender of Troy, the greatest warrior among the Trojans. And he's really the, the heart of, of the city. His, he, he loves the, you know the common good of Troy. He loves glory as well. And he is going to um, you know fight to the death to defend his city. but in the uh, in the book, you know we, the main question of the cause of the war comes up. King Priam tells Helen, uh, "I don't blame you for the war. I don't blame my son paris i don't I don't blame your relationship i I blame the gods." Um, to which Helen responds, "Well, okay." Um, but I, I, in fact, did leave my my native land, my husband, my child, and I ran off with your son. So the question of the cause of the war comes up and and you can see in this exchange another example of well, the gods are to blame for all of this, and the counterposition being, well, what about the human causes? What about human responsibility um, that question who 's to blame for this this whole poem who 's responsible for the, I- the Iliad is um, one to keep in mind while you read it or listen. I, you know, I didn't
0: know until you just told me, or I had forgotten that Helen left a child behind.
1: Yeah, she mentions that in Book Three.
0: That that you know that that really increases the injustice of what she did. Does the child appear in the uh, epic?
1: No, no. But um, you know, her relationship and uh, Paris is—they're both the most beautiful of their kind, right? So she's the most beautiful woman, he's the most handsome. Um, when his good looks come up, Paris always gets a chuckle in book three because he's kind of infuriating both to his brother and, and to readers. He, he tells his brother, look, don't blame me because I'm the most handsome man alive. The gods gave me these gifts, you know. I can't help it if I'm, I'm Paris. And, and also, of course, Helen has that, that beauty as well. Does Aphrodite
0: favor Helen because of the beauty, or is she jealous of Helen because of the beauty, Aphrodite being the Greek goddess who is the most beautiful of the goddesses?
1: Well, she has a a special and disturbing relationship with Helen, especially in Book 3. When Helen is wavering about continuing on with with Paris, when she's wavering and she kind of hates her life or what's become of it, Aphrodite kind of appears and orders her back to bed with Paris one of the more famous details in book three. So they have you know a close relationship and in that in this case uh, Aphrodite orders her to go back go back to bed now the other thing that's really worth noting in book three is when Helen appears on the walls of Troy, Homer includes the detail of the old men of Troy gazing at her and they look at Helen and she's so beautiful and she's looking down over the whole scene. And the old men just sigh, beauty, beauty, terrible beauty. And yet, who could blame them for fighting over her, period. Are they absolving Paris? You know, this is the tension, right? They kind of are. You know, Priam said, I hold the gods to blame. And then the old men of Troy are like, well, you know, who who could blame anyone for this? And I think a lot of readers would raise their hand and say, "Well I could I, I, I can object to the Paris you know how in relationship and
0: Paris. and quickly since we talked about Agamemnon who is the titular head of the Greek forces uh, let's talk about Priam. what do we think of him
1: well, in, in that case um, he we has I believe it's fifty children and by different women, so he's associated with a kind of Trojan sensuality um, but in the case of the conversation with Helen, you know, I think he's, you know, he's excusing his son Paris and blaming the gods. So in that way, I see him as um, part of one of the big problems of the poem. You know, are are the gods to blame for Paris and Helen? Or is Paris and Helen's human freedom to blame? Or is it somehow both? Now, let me also
0: at the very end of this, let's say this is this poem has endured for almost three millennia. Dante uses it, everyone uses it, so people ought to persevere. And you recommend which translation? I'm gonna use Joseph Sachs per Larry Arn's direction. How about you?
1: Well I use and teaching Robert Fagel by Joe Sachs is a wonderful translator.
0: Uh, Stephen Smith, you're a wonderful guest. Dean or no dean? Professor or now banished to administration. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back, America, on Monday.